The following audio is from a sermon series from the book of Acts. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. This is the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria into the end of the earth. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to each other in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, in parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words, for all these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and on the and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be returned, should turn to darkness, and to the moon, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, 
being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received the Father, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let, the house, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is that you is for you and your children, and for all who are far, far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Morning. Morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. It is a beautiful, I think today, I don't care what everybody says, today is the first day of fall. All right? It just feels right. An extra hour of sleep, heavy frost on the ground, sunshine and leaves falling. What a day the Lord has made today. If you don't like it, repent later. It's the best time of year. So I'm Justin. I'm a pastor here at Sacred City. I want to welcome you if this is your first time gathering with us. That was a long text. Um, we kind of do that often at Sacred City. We've, sometimes the easiest way to interpret Scripture is just to by, re- by reading more of it so you get a better context. Um, right, we usually go verse by verse through books of the Bible. But right now we're on a five-week series through the book of Acts. Obviously, I'm not going to go all the way through the book of Acts in five weeks. That would be some serious reading. But we're going to hit some highlights. And then we jump into my favorite... My, my favorite season of the, of the church calendar, which is Advent. And if you're not familiar with Advent, maybe you don't come from a, a, a traditional church background. Advent is, is, really means waiting, okay? It, or it means appearing, but it's, it's all about waiting. And the Advent of Jesus was when Jesus Christ became a baby, right? And now Jesus Christ, it happened about 2,000 years ago, and now we're waiting for Jesus' second Advent, his second appearing, him coming back. So we have a lot in common with um, the people of Jesus' day who were waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the Christ to show up. And they had this, this life of kind of expectation and anticipation and kind of, uh, you know, uh, unfulfilled, unmet longings. They wanted the Messiah to come, so they, were, they had this ache inside of them. Uh, so we can really resonate with that because though Christ has come once, we are still aching and waiting and anticipating his second coming. So what we do during Advent, it's the four weeks before Christmas, the four Sundays before Christmas. And um, where everybody else is going crazy. 
right? Some of you have already been preparing to go crazy. Like it's the day after Thanksgiving. That's when that's when serious the craziness hits, right? Uh, my wife's been guilty of this. I know my family's been guilty of this. You know, they don't sleep the night before because obviously Toys R Us and everything opens at like twelve oh one now. You can shop all night long. Well, when our culture's going crazy with consumerism, and you can find that hundred dollar vacuum for nineteen ninety nine. At Walmart, all you have to do is kill someone to get to it. It's not a big deal. Just trample them, you know. It's money. Why everybody's going crazy, the church calendar causes us to pause and to slow down and to step back and to remember, all right, that we're waiting, that that everything we want's not here, that Jesus is coming back one day, that (laughs) even though the, the advertisement promises that American Girl Doll will solve all of your daughter's needs, it won't. Right? And in fact, with that American girl doll, you'll spend 140 bucks for it. But what it will actually do is create in her something even worse. She'll get it, and then she'll want another one. And then she'll want another one. And then when she's 16, you're wondering why she wants a Ferrari. And she expects it. Don't you love me? My vehicle can't have rust on it. Right? Why? Because we've got this ache inside of us, and we think material things will solve it. But some of us should realize the newest gadget, the newest album, the newest thing. It never solves it, right? The ache is always there. Well, that ache is for Jesus. The ache is for Christ's second coming when he's coming and setting up the kingdom of God on this earth once and for all. So Advent causes us to slow down. What you're going to notice about our gathering, this is, I, I literally can't wait for it, all right? Um, and all the music that we do is Christmas songs, all right? And I'm talking about Santa Claus, all right? We're not talking about Santa Claus to come to town. It's like mostly historic Christian hymns. We've got some new stuff mixed in there. But it's just it's just great. And now you can actually like know the words. You don't just have to hum along on that one weird part that you don't know the words. And it's just as Deo or something. Right? You actually get to see the words up here and know what it's all about. And it's a time that we can slow down. We can push pause. We can say, you know what? I'm not jumping into the consumerism this year. I'm going to pull back. I'm going to focus on what this is all about. The advent of Jesus. Jesus coming once and Jesus is coming again. So, hope you guys are getting excited for that. We usually do a lot of a lot of traditional things. So, that, that candle back there, if you see that, that's called the Christ candle. That candle has been lit since last Advent. Okay? We have a series of candles. We have an Advent wreath that will go on there. We have a series of candles. Each week, a new candle gets lit. And the last week, on Christmas Day, that Christ candle gets lit. And that stays lit, other than when we leave here. That stays lit all year long. And that burns down all year long. We encourage our families to do... If you go down to the religious supply store, um, maybe even at the Christian bookstore, but the religious supply store at the Village of East Davenport, you can buy your own little family wreath with candles. It's really cool. You light a new uh, new candle each week. You talk about whatever that theme is that week. If it's hope, love, peace, joy. Uh, you, there's great Advent devotionals available. Uh, that we're going to be, we're going to buy, we're going to have them back here. It's a great opportunity for you to start doing family worship. With your family at dinner time, five minute devotional, five minute singing a hymn, um, go through a book together. It's a really an awesome time of year where you can pause and you can slow things down. All right, and parents, it will help you. Um, uh, how do I say this? It'll teach your child how to be thank. Well, help teach your child how to be thankful and not just hope in the newest thing and the, the next greatest thing that they saw on commercial that's going to satisfy the deepest longings of their soul. <laughs> All right? So that's coming. I'm really thankful for it. But right now,
We are in the series of, of the book of Acts, making disciples, planting churches, renewing the city. Okay, five weeks. Last week we saw um, kind of one of the most, one of the, one of the kind of the, the most uh, unique aspects of Christianity that the founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ, he died, he was resurrected. This resurrection doesn't mean he became a ghost and he floated off into heaven, but he was resurrected with a, with a physical body that he could, tu- he could be touched, he could eat, he could walk around, he could be seen, he could be heard, he could be felt. He had a physical body that would never, he's never going to die again, but then this Jesus was what? Ascended. He was ascended supernaturally into heaven, and he, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Everybody's getting nervous now. It's just going to get crazy if there was a microphone again. <laughs> if you weren't here two weeks ago, that actually didn't happen, so <laughs> there's no proof of it. Um, so that's what we saw. Jesus Christ is ascended. Right now, he's risen and reigning as king over all the world. Even though it doesn't feel like it oftentimes. It's, it's, it's reality. And we saw last week that the ascension of Jesus was actually, the way we described it, was the trigger for the mission of God. It was the event, the ascension was the event that launched everything else that Jesus did and now made it universally available to us through faith. In our affirmation of faith, we, we, we discovered what true faith was. And we saw something pretty significant as well last week that I couldn't spend very much time on, but I said I was going to deal with it this week. And that was in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The resurrected Jesus tells his apostles to go and wait for the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world, into the earth. Now, I kind of illustrated that a little bit last week, but let me just say, Jerusalem was where they were. Judea was their surrounding areas. Samaria, their surrounding areas, right? And then to the ends of the earth. So it was meant to be this thing that started locally and expanded globally. Has that happened? Has Christianity expanded globally? Absolutely. Yes, it has. Sociologists and historians that don't believe in the resurrection cannot understand and cannot describe the global expansion of Christianity. It's one of the miracles of Christianity. And we're going to say it's this event right here, the ascension of Jesus... And in the sending of the Holy Spirit that caused this little band of brothers, these little no man, no, you know, in no man's land, these little nobodies, to take this thing around the world. So that statement, go wait, I'll send the Holy Spirit, he'll give you power to be my witnesses. That statement is pregnant with meaning. First, it means that these apostles have been drafted into God's plan for the renewal of all things. Matthew 28 says that he wants his thought. Jesus says, I want my followers to do what? To go make disciples who then make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. So that's the mission. Right? We say around here, you can see it right here on this tagline. The mission of God's people, the mission of God's church is to make disciples, to plant churches, and to renew the city. That's our calling. That's our mission. 
That's the mission of God. That's what we're called to do. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you want to know your job description, that's it. Make disciples, plant churches, renew the city. That's what we're all about. But then here's the second thing we see from Acts chapter 1-8. We cannot do this work that God's called us to do, that God's mandated for us. We cannot do this work without extra power. Jesus says the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, that word power, in the Greek, it's dynamis. Dynamis, it's where we get our word dynamite from. Think about this. What if your job was to build a tunnel through the side of a mountain? Right? We've had to do that. If you've ever been to Colorado before, you've probably driven through a tunnel in the side of a mountain. Now listen, you could do this with hammers and chisels, but it's going to be exhausting. It's probably going to take, it's going to take more than your lifetime. It's just you by yourself and a hammer and a chisel. Good luck with that. Right? It's going to take a long time. It's probably, it's actually physically impossible for you to get through the side of this mountain. It's going to take too, many, too much time. Multiple lifetimes. But what railroad workers learned was if they chiseled these small holes in the rock and then they placed the dynamite in these little holes and they lit the fuse and ignited the dynamite, there was an explosive power that made the work possible. It was still hard work, backbreaking work, completely exhausting work, but it now was possible to get through the mountain. They actually had the power necessary for completing the work. See, that is very similar to what the Holy Spirit is like in the life of a Christian. Listen, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus without the Holy Spirit. You don't have the power. No one makes themselves a Christian. You don't have the power. It's spiritual, supernatural. You you can't do it yourself. Nobody makes themselves into a Christian. But secondly, you also can't make disciples without the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual mission. It's a spiritual work. So it requires a spiritual power to be able to do it. It's like trying to have life without breath. It just doesn't work. Now, my wrestling coach used to say that fatigue makes cowards of men. What he meant was that when things get heated, when the match goes to the later periods and both guys are gassed, if one guy is out of shape, this is like, wrestlers live for this. When one guy, when you realize you're in better shape than the other guy, his, we always talk about his will breaks. See, he gets really tired. If you've ever been in a workout or run a race, you know what it's like. At this one point, you hit this wall where all you're out of breath and all you're thinking about is oxygen. Right? You're not thinking, of, it doesn't matter if you're in the middle of a wrestling match, it could be state, the state championship, you're not thinking about a gold medal. You're not thinking about winning, you're thinking about surviving. I think I'm going to die. I can't breathe. Right? And one guy, if one guy's in better shape, one guy stays focused on the match, one guy's still thinking about winning, the other guy's thinking about living. I might die. I need breath. So he's doing everything he can to rest and to take a break. 
See, when you can't breathe, you forget about everything else. That's the same for Christians. Without the Spirit, we're cowards. Fatigue makes cowards of men. Without the Spirit, we're cowards. Without the Spirit, we're breathless. We are incapable of living the life that God God has called us to. Let me just tell you this. Many people believe Christianity is a way of living. It's acting like this and having this list of things that people do. Well, Christians do this and Christians don't do this. You could say that, but if you wanted to judge it by that, I'm going to tell you this, then there's only one Christian. Jesus is the only person who's ever been born of a woman who is capable of living the Christian life. Jesus. And I, I, I could talk to your spouse and get confirmation, but I doubt you're him. Right? So I'm going to say something that could be offensive. You suck at being a Christian. Right? Let's just... Now listen, maybe, maybe you've done a good job of controlling out here. You don't cuss, right? You don't, you, nobody sees you walk into that movie, right? You just run them at home and nobody can find out, right? So, you, you know, right? You, you, you've managed the outward stuff pretty good. So people would look and go, oh, that person's like, but what about in your heart? You've never had an affair on your wife. Congratulations. Have you in your heart? Well, then Jesus says we're all guilty, right? Same thing. Same thing. See, The only person who's capable of living the Christian life is Jesus. So because we're incapable, because it's impossible to follow Jesus on our own, God does something supernatural. Jesus sends to the Father and he says, go and wait. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit that's going to empower you, give you the dynamite power to live a life that Jesus lived. Now, we can't do it perfectly. We'll never do it perfectly. So we're going to get into that this morning. Now listen, Tim Keller says that in the book of Acts here, that we see the apostles, I love this statement, he says, we see the apostles burn bright without burning out. They burn bright without burning out. Now let me ask you, how about you? Do you feel like your life is burning bright? Are you on fire? Do people look at you and go, whoa, that's different. Are you burning bright? And let me say, secondly, for those of you who are like, yeah, I kind of am. Are you burning out? Are you burning bright? But you know fuel, the fuel is precious and the fuel is burning quick. And you don't know if you can maintain this. You don't know if you can keep this pace up any longer. Are you burning bright, but you're burning out? See, what we see in the apostles is through the power of the Holy Spirit. They burn bright and they don't burn out. This week when I was uh, working out in my garage, I heard an interview on the radio with Blake Shelton. If you don't know Blake Shelton, he's a uh, country music star. He's one of the uh, biggest in the business right now. He also stars on one of the popular shows, The Voice. And in this interview, the radio host was just singing Blake's praises, right? CMA Awards, Out the Ears. Uh, he's married to a you know, country music star. He's a three-time winner of The Voice. He's got hit records. Just going on and on and on, right? He's just singing his praises. And Blake was saying, yeah, it's good, but I just don't see how I can keep this up. 
And the guy just like doesn't even hear it. He's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Things are great, man. You're just rocking it out. And he says, yeah, but I'm exhausted. I just can't be on the road, making albums, having a wife, and doing the voice seasons back to back to back to back. He says, something's got to give. And this is telling. But I just don't think I can see somebody else sitting on my chair on the voice. He says, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can't keep this up. See, Blake's burning, but he's burning up. He's on fire, but he's being consumed. But as Christians, God has given us a way of living that allows us to burn without burning up. That allows us to shine bright without being consumed. But that power comes to us in a very unconventional way. And before we jump into our text, we're going to start just by remembering the life of Jesus. See, Jesus was a perfect example of a life who burned bright without burning out. But he died. Yeah, but he went there willing. He didn't burn out. We see Jesus burning bright without burning out. Now, let's start. Do you remember how Jesus began his ministry? See, Jesus, unlike most most. You know, most people don't understand that he spent the first 30 years of his life just like a normal dude. He worked with his dad as a carpenter. He did his chores. He went to the temple like a good Jewish man would on Saturdays. He loved his parents and his siblings. No miracles. Like, just think about that. Jesus, go chop some wood. We need a fire. It's done, Mom. Right? He could have. He could have. He didn't. He went and chopped wood. Jesus, make a table. Dad goes out of the room. It's done, Dad. Right? Didn't do it. Didn't do it. Took the wood, took the hammer, took the plane, took the saw, did the work. 30 years normalcy. Normal life. Like us. Going to the bathroom. Getting sick at night. Loving neighbors. Obeying sinful parents. See, Jesus was sinless, but his mama wasn't. His dad wasn't. His stepdad wasn't. Jesus was absolutely normal then. 30 years, no miracles, no hoopla, no crowds chanting his name. He wasn't student body president, right? Wasn't captain of the football team. Just normal guy, kicking rocks in the desert. But then, Scripture says, when his time had come to start his ministry, Jesus went and was baptized by this crazy baptizer named John. Right? And at his baptism, it says that the heavens are open and the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. Now, it was not a literal dove. I know you've seen the cheesy paintings of Jesus like this, and this little white dove floating down on top of him. Right? Didn't, it looked like a dove. It was just descending on him like a dove. Okay? Holy Spirit descends, the heaven opens, and God, His Father, speaks and said, This is my beloved Son. Before Jesus had done any miracles, He says, This is my beloved Son, and whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends on Him. And then we see something amazing. The Holy Spirit then leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. 
and over, and from that point on, he succeeds. He, 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 he doesn't give into temptation with the enemy. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And we see this strange thing that Jesus Christ, even though he's 100% God, he's also 100% man, but he's, Jesus lives his life full of the Holy Spirit. See, many people think because he was God, he was kind of like Superman wearing Clark Kent's clothes. Guess what? If you shot Clark Kent, he's still bulletproof. Yeah, there was nothing special about his club. Hey, can we get this? Jesus was the same way. He, he, he kind of laid aside. He was still fully God, but he kind of laid aside his God-like attributes. And he, re- he used the Holy Spirit. He relied upon the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit. Guess what? God doesn't get tired, but Jesus got tired. Jesus would get tired so that he'd be led by the Holy Spirit to go out to the desert to rest and to recharge and to pray and to speak to the Father. So I want you to hear that right away. That Jesus Christ was full of the Holy Spirit. And even Jesus, before starting his ministry, even Jesus waited to be filled with power from God. It's power that comes in the form of the Holy Spirit. And now we see in the book of Acts, the resurrected Jesus is ordering his followers to go and wait for the same Holy Spirit. For them to receive the same power. I can just imagine this. His disciples are thinking, we're going to get the same power that Jesus had? Dude, I'm going to be running on water. Like, I, I would just imagine and think, going through the list of everything Jesus did. Yes. Then Jesus, he ascends to the Father, thereby making this possible for them. And in Acts 2.33 that we read here, it said that Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he's now sending it to them. Okay? So that's what we're talking about right now. How did it come to them? What happened? We're going to look at this. I'm not going to go completely verse by verse, but I will for the first 12 verses. And I think it's going to really reshape, I hope, some of our notions of what the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does. I grew up uh, in a kind of a Pentecostal, charismatic upbringing that kind of felt like the Holy Spirit was uh, show and tell time. Right? The Holy Spirit was just for crazy, wild things. Right? And, and it just the Holy Spirit would lead you to choose what kind of clothes you wear. Uh, the Holy Spirit would give you the, the perfect parking lot or parking spot. Like the Holy Spirit would just speak to you all the time. And some of us have grown up in conservative, really conservative background that thought the Holy Spirit, that was just for the old, that was just for the New Testament. Holy Spirit doesn't really work anymore. People believe the Trinity now is Father, Son, Holy Bible. They kind of forget about the Holy Spirit. But I think we're going to see something different today. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to study this together. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Okay, stop. They obeyed Jesus. Jesus said, go wait for the Holy Spirit. Guess what? The apostles did that. They obeyed Jesus. They went. They gathered together. They're praying Look what's about to happen. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire. Okay, not literal fire. Looked like fire. Kind of like the, the Holy Spirit looked like a dove as a fire. Appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled 
with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, first off, I want to say this. Like Jesus' resurrection, Pentecost, and we're going to actually celebrate Pentecost this year. It's part of the church calendar. It's usually uh, 50 days after Easter. Like Jesus' resurrection, Pentecost is attested to by sight, by sound, and by touch. Okay, it's not just some spiritual thing that happened. There's physical realities that people are hearing and seeing and feeling. And in Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit is, is said to be uh, brooding or moving over the face of the waters. A, he's like a wind. Okay, we see the wind come in here. In Exodus 2, when Moses, uh, he's walking all of a sudden, we see this, he sees this bush kind of catch fire, but it's not being consumed. So it's kind of like fire, but it's not fire. It's not consuming anything. It's burning, but not consuming it. So now we see this kind of flame that God is, the Holy Spirit is kind of associated with in the Old Testament. Now we see the flame kind of above their head, some weird, wild hairdo, right? And then we see this third thing that's happening. They're hearing these strange words, these speaking in other tongues. That's weird, right? So there's a hearing, there's a seeing, there's a touch going on. And what I want you to see now, let's just keep reading here for, for a little bit. No, actually, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm going to just give you an overview of what's going on through 5 through 11. This is what's going on. He just lists a bunch of nations. He's saying there's Jews from all over the world here, and they're all, they have all these different nations and all these different languages are represented here. And what's happening is the apostles are speaking this funky He's calling it just speaking in tongues. They're saying whatever language, but everybody's hearing them in their own language. So I'm just going to use our. So Africans are hearing them in Swahili or whatever dialect they're speaking in. Chinese are speaking in Chinese. They're hearing them in all their different languages. This is something supernatural that's taking place. And the last time in the entire scripture that we've ever had all these different nations listed was in Genesis 10. If you remember in Genesis 10, it's kind of called the League of Nations. It just lists all these nations, and all these nations are kind of united. And they say, we're going to build this tower of Babel. We're going to build this huge, it's called it, we're going to build this huge tower that reaches the heavens. We're going to be united, and we're going to reach higher than God. Kind of a testimony to human ingenuity. And what does God do in Genesis 11? God literally divides them. How does he divide them? changes their language. See, all these nations in Genesis 10 spoke the same language. And they all were united to kind of take God's place. They were united in their, in their quest for uh, exaltation. So God says, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to change their language. I'm going to give them all different languages. Now I'll confuse them and they can't be united like this. Okay? So ever since Genesis 11, human beings have had different languages, different dialogues. They have a hard time uniting. They have a hard time understanding each other. But what we see right here is when the Spirit of God comes, we see this new kingdom reality. We see all of humanity being brought back in into one language again. In heaven, in the new creation, we'll understand each other better than we do right now. We see this taking place right away when the Holy Spirit comes. It's kind of a reversal of Babel. That God is uniting the human race into one people again. His kingdom. 
Now listen, this really is the first worship service of the church. Post-ascension, this is the first gathering. This is the first, well, that we know of. It's the first worship service to the resurrected Jesus. This is the first sermon that we're about to hear from Peter. Can I ask you? The first worship service, um, what language was it in? The first sermon, what language was it in? What culture? This is beautiful to me. All of them. All of them. Not Jewish, not Greek, right? Not Roman, not African, not Egyptian, not American. That the first sermon, the first worship sermon, the worship service was a testimony of what's going to happen in the new kingdom, what's going to happen in the new creation. That we're not going to be cultural and divided, we're going to be united. That God takes different cultures. And this, guys, this is unique to Christianity. Right? If you have Islam, and Islam has a specific culture. It's located in a specific place. So if you're an American and you become Islamic, guess what you do? You start dressing Islamic. Right? You start adopting their culture. Christianity is transcultural. Christianity involves and brings them all together and unites them into one. Radically inclusive. But then what are the people talking about? They're they're babbling on kind of in this unknown language or people's hearing them in their their own dialect. But what are they talking about? Look at verse 11. When you're there, say there. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. So he's talking about everyone. We hear them telling in our own tongues. What are they telling? The mighty works of God. See, this is a miraculous work of a big word here. Contextualization. This is a miraculous work of contextualization. That the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is taking the mighty works of God, the things that God has done, the amazing works of God that's been done in Christ, and He's preaching them to these people in their own language. Christian, this is important for us to hear. Do you realize that everyone kind of has their own language? Every culture has their own language? And even when you get it, if you just join a bowling league, you, you jump into this new language. We had this new person come and, and start uh, doing CrossFit with us this week. And, and there's a lot of weird, blunt words in CrossFit. Right? We, we were doing, she's like, what movement is it? It's a clean and jerk. Ah, okay. She kept asking me over, what, what, what is that again? That's a clean and jerk. What is that again? That's a clean and jerk. Why? Because we have this, this different language. And for us, listen to this, for us to be able to share the gospel or even share Jesus with our neighbor, we need to know what dialect do they speak? What language do they speak? When you come in with your spiritual language and you start saying big words, most of the time they're like, what? You could be speaking Chinese for all I know. But when when the Holy Spirit falls, one of the things that happens is this contextualization that takes the reality of the mighty works of God and speaks it in a language they can understand. Amazing! At least it's amazing to me. So many people... Now, I grew up in a charismatic background. So when when people talked, they were all about talking in tongues. They were all about speaking in tongues. And they were all about... Some people even say that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. Right? 
But what is speaking in tongues? They're not doing it. Just, okay, there's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to get in trouble here, but I'm going to say, in other parts of the Bible, later on, 1 Corinthians, some other different places, we're going to talk about that later, there's, a, there's what's called a prayer language, okay? People refer to it as a prayer language. Speaking in tongues kind of privately to God, okay? Or there's a speaking in tongues and then there's an interpretation that comes. This is different than that. This is not that. This is completely different. This is they're speaking, the apostles are speaking, and people are hearing them in their own language. You see that? And what's the purpose? Contextualization of the, the mighty works of God. That's the purpose. This is not a prayer language they're talking about here. Okay? And what happens? Look at verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? I love this. It's like the double rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> what does it mean? Right? They're seeing this. They're hearing this. And they got no idea what's going on. This is awesome, but I'm perplexed. This, I'm kind of freaked out, but it's cool. What does it mean? And I, and I, I wish we would answer that question. So many people want to talk about what we just read, the first 11 verses, speaking in tongues, is it for the church today, what does it mean, or they don't say what does it mean, just all that, they want to have the Holy Spirit come and fill them with power, do stuff. but they don't ask the question, what does it mean? Listen, speaking in tongues freaked people out. It wasn't like they spoke in tongues and they just sat around like, we got the Spirit. They spoke in other tongues and everybody's like, what the heck does that mean? And guess what they needed? They needed what we're about to see. Peter stands up and preaches a sermon answering that question. What does it mean? We're about to see Peter answer that. See, the first 13 verses are Luke's description of how the Spirit falls. Okay? Now, from verse 14 to 41, this is Peter's interpretive sermon. Peter's saying, that craziness that you're witnessing right now, that's speaking another language, and you're asking, what does it mean? Let me tell you something. Peter steps up, and he's going to preach a sermon. He's going to interpret what just happened. Okay? And then what I love is the next chunk, verses 42 through 47, what happens, the Spirit falls and fills it with power, and the Spirit creates what's now called the Ecclesia, the Church of God. This church, the church. And we're going to see how the Spirit falling and empowering them for mission, how it affects the church. We're going to talk about that next week. Okay? So that's coming next week. But what I want you to see here is the last time we saw Peter. Peter, Jesus Christ, gets kind of kidnapped-ish, right? Taken, beaten, about to be crucified. And what does Peter do? Jesus even told him, you're going to deny me three times. Or you're going to deny me before you hear the rooster crow three times. Gee, Peter, Never! Not me, maybe those jokers, but I'm your A-guy. I'm your right-hand man, not me, Jesus. See my sword? <laughs> and what does Peter do? As soon as he sees the world collapsing, as soon as he sees Jesus being kidnapped, Jesus being crucified, what does Peter do? He bounces, he bolts, he goes back to his fishing boat. He goes back to his old life. And it takes the resurrected Jesus to go show up and go, come on, Peter, come on back. I'm still going to use you. There's still repentance here. I'm coming back. I'm going to use you. That's the last time we saw Peter. Pansy. Pansy, petrified P. 
Peter. <laughs> but now, we're about to see a whole different Peter. I love this. People want to say stupid things in our culture like people never change. Maybe that's true without the Holy Spirit. But with the Holy Spirit, people freaking change. I've seen it. We got to baptize people last week who have changed. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is real. So, Peter before is a wuss. He's petrified. He's a pansy. Peter after is a little different. Let's see what Peter preaches. How does Peter interpret what just happened? Okay, look at, first off, verse 14, I love it. But Peter, standing with the eleven, I love it. He's standing with the eleven. So the other apostles are sitting here. Jesus, everybody's kind of in a line. People are going, what does it mean? Everybody's looking at one another. Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? And Peter steps up. Pansy, petrified Peter, now full of the Holy Spirit, steps up. And what does he say? Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk with wine, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. I love this. Peter's like, hey guys, his sermon doesn't start powerfully, by the way. Guys, they're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Oh, okay, good point. It's only 9 a.m. Right? That's what he starts with. And then look at this. Since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Okay, so these people are Jews. They understand the Old Testament. So what Peter's about to do is going to take two or three different Old Testament texts and interpret it for them. And so show, this is what Jesus did. This is who Jesus is. This is what the Holy Spirit is. When, when Joel said that the Spirit would fall and people would speak in, uh, in the last days, God declares that I will pour my Spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. So this is happening right now. This is what was prophesied in Joel, that the Spirit would fall and it would come on all flesh. Okay? He's going to go on a little bit. And then, look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, this historical dude, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So guys, do you see how he's talking to them? These people were witnesses, first-hand witnesses of Jesus. So he says, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, you know the dude, we just hung him on a cross, he died. He did a lot of miracles, right? There's historians like this guy named Josephus that can attest that this Jesus made this weird and crazy impact in the first century, right? Like, so so he, he starts off pointing, that Jesus, whom you know, whom you killed, this is where we're going here. Keep reading. As you yourselves know, 23, this Jesus de- delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Whoa. Do you see that? What does Peter preach? What does Peter preach? When they say, what does this mean? Peter goes, Jesus, whom you saw, whom you witnessed, whom you killed. But I love this part right here. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite, oh, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
See, Peter preaches the absolute sovereignty of God. That Jesus was delivered up because of his definite plan and foreknowledge. God wasn't hoping that Jesus was going to be crucified to pay the debts for our sins. God had planned it, and it was a definite plan. It was going to happen. It could not not happen. God planned it, Jesus agreed to it, and it was set in stone from all eternity. But here's the kicker. What's he say after that? You crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. God is sovereign, but you're still responsible. God planned it, you did it. You're still guilty. You are still responsible for your actions. Peter says, God planned it just the way it happened, but you're still accountable because you did it. You crucified and killed Jesus. I imagine things got real quiet right there. What does it mean? You're murderers. Oh! Let me think about that for a little bit. Sometimes we hope people are speaking in tongues so we can't understand them. We don't want to take the guilt and the ownership of our sin. I killed him. I didn't kill him. I wasn't there. I just watched. He says, you're guilty. And then he goes on. Verse 24. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it because he was sinless. So he conquers sin. And he goes on and gives a prophecy that David spoke. And he kind of gives the interpretation saying, David was speaking it. They thought it was about David. It wasn't really about David. It was actually about Jesus. Look at verse 32 now. This Jesus God raised up. And of all that, we are all witnesses. We witness Jesus being resurrected. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has now poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What's He say? They're asking, what is going on? We don't understand. What does this mean? He says, Jesus Christ whom you killed, has been ascended, is now pouring out the Holy Spirit that was promised in Joel. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're hearing. It's the Holy Spirit sent by a resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ. I love it. In verse 32, you see the whole Trinity working. The Trinity is a word that to describe the complex kind of nature of God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In one, three in one. We see God planning the cross. We see Jesus going to the cross, being led by the Spirit. We see God raising him up and giving him the promise of the Spirit. We see Jesus and the Father have now poured out the Spirit on his apostles. John Stott says that we see the Holy Spirit pouring out on them. And what he's doing is he's working out in them what he's already won for them. The Holy Spirit is working out in them what He's already won for them. Now let's go to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know. See, He's preaching to Jews. Okay? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified.
Peter isn't very nice here. He's not too concerned about the possibility of being offensive. He's making a strong point. You are guilty for killing the Son of God. Listen, hear me right now. This is petrified, pansy Peter. And now all of a sudden, in the midst of thousands of people who could... Jesus was just crucified 50 days ago. 50 days ago, he was crucified. And now you have Pansy Peter who went and hide, hid, went back to his job. You have Pansy Peter stepping up and going, let me tell you what this means. It means you're murderers. Where does that power come from? He's not worried about being offensive. He's not worried about them picking him up and killing him and nailing him to the cross. Where does his power come from? Scripture says the power comes from God through the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening. The Holy Spirit has filled him with power. And what we get to see here is we get to see the fruit of a Spirit-filled sermon. What happens when Peter's full full of the Holy Spirit, he preaches with boldness. So before I go there, let me just say, if you have this charismatic background, what I want you to see this whole point of the sermon, you know what he's saying? They're speaking in other tongues. It's all about Jesus. It's not a sideshow. It's not a circus act. It's not for them to show off or, or you know, do something really spiritual and, and commune with some higher power and turn off their brain and turn on their inner core. Peter says, what does it mean? Let me tell you what it means. It means Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and you're guilty for his murder. Oh. What happens? What do we see? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. See, this is the fruit of a spirit-filled sermon. I have a fear, but I know it's true. Many preachers today are afraid of people being cut to the heart. They might not come back. So they preach rainbows and butterflies. Jesus loves all. Right? He's this nice little sweet guy. Just give him your heart if you're ready. Are you ready? Give him your heart. He's waiting there. All right, like Grandpa. There's a king in my pocket. That's the Jesus that's being preached today. But the Bible says this right here, this is what makes you a Christian. They were cut to the heart. See, this is the secret. In John 16, 8, it says that when the Spirit comes into the world, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness. He will convict the sin, the world of sin and righteousness. Now, a little Greek word there in John 16, 8 for convict is elekcho. I can't even say it. Elekcho. Which means to cross-examine until you see your mistake. To convict That the Holy Spirit brings conviction. It it cross-examines you. It cuts through all your excuses. But but the reason why I I live this way is because of my upbringing. The Holy Spirit cuts through all of that and cuts to the heart. It cross-examines until all you can say is, crap, I'm guilty. 
This word here, this cut to the heart, means to pierce with the blade. That you've been penetrated. It's a spiritual cutting of your heart. Your heart is cut wide open and you're guilty and you know it and you stand condemned. And you don't see Jesus' little grandpa that just open arms, just come here to daddy. That you realize you're guilty. You know you've sinned against God. You know you turned from Him. You know he, you're one of the reasons why He was crucified. If you would have been there during that time, you would have been chanting like everybody else, crucify Him. They were cut to the heart by Peter's sermon. Peter's spirit-filled sermon. <laughs> we see here that the Holy Spirit enabled a petrified Peter to preach a bold and gospel-rich sermon about Jesus. And we see that the Spirit is also using those words of Peter to bring conviction to the hearts of his listeners. You want to be spirit-filled? Preach the gospel! You want to be spirit-filled? Preach Jesus Christ! The perfect man whom humanity crucified. We saw his perfection and we didn't want anything to do with it. Because you know, when you, when you see somebody better than you, it cuts you to the heart. You see somebody better than you, it makes you feel guilty and ashamed. Jesus was better than all of us. He goes to the cross to pay our price for our sin and rebellion. He does it willingly. So... Holy Spirit falls, fire, wind, tongues. What does it mean? He preaches the gospel. Jesus Christ died for you murderers. What happens next? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now this is just... Gold. I would love to live such a crazy, unexplainable life that your neighbors go, what does your life mean? Why are people at your house all the time? Why are you so sacrificial? Why are you so loving? Why are you so humble? Why are you so kind? What does this mean? It's Jesus. Now I'm afraid many of us would, would say, I don't know why I am. I guess it's just the way I was raised. I don't know why I'm so, well, you know, blessed. (laughs) Right? We're not going to give up. And the answer is Jesus. If you see any humility in me, it's only because Jesus was humbled. And seeing Jesus on the cross, the perfect son of God, dying as my substitution, that humbles me. So if you see me as humble, that's a spark because I'm not humble. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit that you see in that moment. The answer is Jesus. Kind of love it. And then what's your neighbor goes? Oh. Answer she. Well then what should I do? Listen, remember when dad used to lob those little ones up like that? And you could I feel like Ortiz. Right? Remember those little lobs, soft lobs? That, this, is a, this is a soft missional lob right here. Holy Spirit falls, crazy stuff's going on, they're living lives that don't make sense. They ask, what does it mean? He tells them it's all about Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And they go, oh, well then what should we do? Oh, come to church with me on this Sunday. 
Um, I don't really know what to do. Let me call my pastor. Let me blog about it. I don't know. Here's a book. What should we do? What does Peter answer? And Peter said to them, I've got you something. Here's something you can do. I got a little something for you. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children. Why do we baptize kids? And for all who are far off. That's us. We're far off. Everyone. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Everyone what? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What amazing news. Have you been cut to the heart? What should you do? Respond to the Spirit, Peter says. How do you respond? Turn from your old life and turn to Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. This is for you, your kids, for everyone, whomever the Lord our God calls to himself. Did you hear that? Listen, guys. Jesus is not grandpa sitting down there going, Come here, please! God, keep coming! You gotta, I, got, I got a couple kids that most of the time they run, sometimes they're just like, eh, not feeling it today. Jesus is going, come here, please. Oh, come on. <laughs> what a pansy. That's not Jesus. Jesus says, come here. What the? <laughs> I'm living my own life. Jesus calls me and I get, I'm there. Just like when he speaks to Lazarus. Lazarus dead in two, come forth. Comes out. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself will be saved. Everyone. He calls them to come forth. Peter says it again right here. Absolute sovereignty of God and salvation. This should be good news to us. See, it's not by begging. It's not by, listen, Christian or people who are moralistic. God, you don't get the Holy Spirit, you don't get power, you don't get Him, you don't get God by being better. I know some of you came and you're going through a tough time in your life and you came here to get better. You came here to maybe get fixed. That's not how you come to God. God has drawn you in here today, yes. God will make your life better. But you don't get to Him by being better. You don't get the Holy Spirit through reaching the next level in your Christian life or becoming better in your spiritual disciplines. You don't get the Holy Spirit by going to camp and having this crazy experience where they just keep playing the same song over and over until the Holy Spirit falls, supposedly. Or they start saying crazy words and say, just repeat after me. That's... Human, bogus, garbage. What happens? Spirit falls. A wuss Peter preaches a gospel, bold, Jesus-centered sermon. They're cut to the heart. Peter says, you're cut to the heart? Here's the answer. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the Holy Spirit will come. If you have been cut to the heart, 
If you've been convicted and you turn to Jesus, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And what happens? Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So we don't have this whole sermon here. Saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people like that. He didn't have any illustrations. Didn't have three points in a poem. He had Jesus and the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and 3,000 people got saved. Sacred City, this is revival. I drive by these little churches that advertise revival next week. Revival, 10, 24. You don't plan revival. Revival happens when the gospel is proclaimed and the spirit accompanies it and men and women are cut to the heart and they respond with repentance and faith. That brings revival. This is what I want to see. This is what I pray to see in our city in our day. It's all about Jesus. It's all empowered by the spirit. This is just a glimpse right here into the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus did it all. We receive it. The only imperative is to repent and be baptized. So many Christians, I think, get so distracted by signs and wonders and people want to talk about gifts and talk about all these different things. And those are good. I'm not saying anything bad about them. Just turn on TVN. All they, I don't, haven't done that in years, but all they talk about is supposed miracles and getting all these crazy gifts and all this kind of stuff. They miss the point. The gifts were never the point. We never see this happening again. We never see the Spirit falling and people speaking in other people's languages. We never see it happen. We never see wind and fire. We never see it happen again. Jesus is the point of this text. The signs only testify to the gospel. Don't look for wind, fire, and strange words. Look to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit does. See, the Holy Spirit just shines a big spotlight on Jesus. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would be our comforter and would remind us of all that He said and taught. See, the Holy see, it's about it's not about us. It's about Jesus. The only person who can live the Christian life is Jesus. The Spirit helps us make it about Jesus and get back to Jesus. So just in this text, as I close here, just in this text. We see the power of the Holy Spirit accomplishing many things. We see the power of the Holy Spirit giving special words to His people for mission. We see the power of the Holy Spirit accompany these words with a conviction of the heart. We see the Spirit glorify Jesus. We see the Spirit embolden and encourage Peter. We see the, the Spirit amaze onlookers. And we see the Spirit regenerate and save 3,000 people at once. Remember, Jesus said, no man can come to the Father unless he's drawn there by the Father. When the Spirit draws. I think this passage for us is both terrifying and incredibly comforting. It's terrifying because God is actually saving people. God is changing 
human beings' eternal destinies through his followers. So if you're a follower of Jesus, let me, let me speak to you this morning. God is saving people through you. Okay? Most of us didn't go to sleep one night and have a dream of an ascended, resurrected Jesus. And then wake up and go, Jesus, I need you. I repent. Right? Most of us came to faith through parents, through neighbors, through friends, through siblings, through children. God uses people to save people. That's a little terrifying. And, when, and I've grown up and I've heard people say, you know, put a lot of guilt and a lot of pressure on us. If you don't do it, preachers, if you don't do it, they'll go to hell. If you don't do it, nobody will. If you don't do it, all this pressure. That pressure doesn't help. Number one, Jesus, he just says right here that the only ones that can come are the ones the Father draws, the ones the Father calls. So that's why, secondly, it's really comforting at the same time. See, the work of saving people is all God's. God elects them. God chooses them. God then calls them to himself, verse 39 says. Jesus dies for them. Jesus' sacrifice paid their debts. They're paid now and they're set free. The Holy Spirit cuts them to the heart and shines a spotlight on Jesus' work. That's what the Spirit is doing. See, we, as his followers, are called to love people and point them to Jesus and share Jesus with them, trusting the Holy Spirit of God for the power that accompanies and accomplishes the mission of God. The Spirit is doing that. The Spirit uses our inadequacies and our failures. and our. You're never going to have the perfect thing to say to the neighbor. You say what you can say and trust the Holy Spirit's going to do something. See, God has done all this prep work. And he accompanies all our serving and all our sharing with the power of the Holy Spirit. Christian, even when you don't feel him, the power for mission has already been given to you. Peter says, you've been given everything we need for life and godliness. You're not lacking. God's not holding out been given the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you been cut to the heart? Have you turned to Jesus in repentance and placed your faith in Him? Then you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And you've been given great power to witness to the work that Jesus has done. We're never pointing at ourselves. We're pointing to Jesus. Nobody comes to faith by going, you are so righteous and holy. I want to be like that bull. Preachers talk like that. I, it's never happened. It doesn't happen. Your neighbor sees your inadequacy. Your neighbor sees your weakness. Your neighbor sees your sin. It bugs them. They're bugged by you. Just like you see theirs and you're bugged by it. See, we're not saved by making disciples of ourselves. We're saved, but we're not saved by it. We're saved to making disciples of Jesus. It's about him. He's the only one that lived a Christian life. I can't do it. 
I turn from my sin, place my faith in that perfect work. Let's pray. Father, sometimes this feels like a fairy tale. And I think it does, as Tolkien and Lewis would say, because <clears throat> these most fairy tales point to something deeper than the reality that we experience, a longing that we have to be made right with you, a longing we have to be supernatural. Every kid wants to be a superhero. And in this gospel, Jesus Christ, the God-man, comes to earth and obeys where we fall short ever since. Pleases you perfectly. And then dies the death that we all deserve for our rebellion. Ascends, is resurrected, ascends to the Father, sends us this Holy Spirit to empower us, to literally fill us with himself so that we can be his witnesses on this earth. Miraculous. It's perplexing. What does it mean? Father, I think it all points back to just how good you are, how jacked up we are, and how gracious you are. And you don't tell us to change our outward appearance or follow a list or a code. Or you say, just turn from your sin and turn to me. And I'll give you the Holy Spirit. I pray right now for the Christians in this room that you would again fill them with your spirit. That you would never leave them, but we see in the apostles later on in Acts that we kind of run dry sometimes. And we rely on our own strength so often that we burn out. Would you remind the Christians in this room that they have been filled with your Holy Spirit for missions? And that never runs out. You'll never leave them or forsake them. Give them a sense and awareness of their love and adoption from God the Father. Gratefulness that you called them. You called them to yourself. And for those not yet believers that are in this room, would you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, let them see the simplicity, the beauty of the cross. That's not for winners. It's for those who have admitted that they're weak and they're losers and that they can't save themselves. Would you cut those people to the heart? Would you give them the gift of faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit? Father, as we come, the believers come now to partake in the Lord's table, we're reminded how you were broken for us before we did anything deserving, before we did any works of righteousness, any good deeds, before we did anything good, you were broken. God who spoke galaxies into existence humbled himself and becomes a zygote in the womb of a mother. Let that shape us. Let that characterize our life. And Father, as we take the cup, that's your blood. And we sing today, nothing but the blood. Scripture says that life is in the blood that your blood that was spilled to cover us, to cleanse us, to make us right, that it was the debt that was owed. It was the ransom price that needed to be paid. And Jesus, you paid it. Let us take this cup. Let us eat this bread. 
as disciples who are thankful for the presence of God, for the gift of your body and your blood. Father, I ask that you empower us and send us out on your mission this week. In Jesus' name, amen.